Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. A massive thank you to the people behind the chart-topping app Seekers Notes for sponsoring this episode. Seekers Notes is a brilliantly immersive hidden object game where players get to join in on the incredible journey through the cursed city of Darkwood. Take on the role of Seeker, who is the owner of a powerful artifact, the magical map. And with this map, you have to journey through different locations to save the city from the oppressive curse. There are over 8,000 quests and 1,000 artifacts for you to complete and collect on Seeker's Notes, with new game patches, aka new content, being released every month. You can even play with your family and friends by joining a guild. There is just so much to explore, and the best part is, this app is free to play. One of the reasons I haven't been uploading as much recently is because I've been literally addicted to this game. It's just such a fun game to play in your free time. I love the art style and how easy it is to get hooked. Seekers Notes is actually celebrating their fifth birthday this year. Happy birthday, Seekers Notes. And to celebrate, we're teaming up to give 50 lucky people the chance to win a $10 Amazon gift card. All you have to do is post a screenshot of you at level 11 in the game with your game ID on their Facebook page using the link down below in the description. Again, thank you so much to Seekers Notes for helping to keep this channel afloat. You can find a link to download the app on your iPhone, Android, Amazon phone, Windows phone, Samsung phone, all the phones at the top of the description and in the pinned comments, along with a link to the Seekers Notes Facebook page, so you can get a chance to get your hands on that free $10 Amazon gift card, because let's be real, who doesn't like a free gift card? I mean, hello. And with all that being said, let's delve right into this case. People say Kit didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. Farmington Hills, Michigan. Yeah, that's 
A respected family in the community of Farmington Hills, Michigan, is struck by tragedy. Was this simply a break-in gone wrong, or something far more sinister? Let's discuss the case of Tucker Cipriano. The Cipriano family was the stereotypical picture of a perfect family. They lived in a beautiful home in a beautiful city, the local community being one of wealth. The father in the family, Robert Cipriano, was born on the 30th of November 1959 and was actually the third of six sons. Robert, known as Bob to most, we'll be referring to him as Bob in this episode, first went to school at Our Lady of Grace Catholic School before going on to Bishop Bogress High School. Following his graduation, Bob went on to study at Central Michigan University. His parents instilled values in Bob from an early age that saw him grow into a loving, devoted and committed man. Bob loved every aspect of his life, his friends, his religion and his work. On the 17th of September 1988, Bob married Rosemary Traha. The couple were described as being deeply in love with one another and it seemed like a match made in heaven. The couple settled down in Farmington Hills and it wasn't long before they welcomed their first child into the world. Bob and Rose Cipriano adopted Tucker Cipriano when he was just four days old. The young family would ultimately consist of Bob, Rose, Tucker and three other children, Tana and Salvatore who were twins and Isabella, the couple's only daughter. It's important to note that Tucker was the only adopted child within this family with the other three being um, biological children if that makes sense that that will come in that will play a bit more importance later on in this case by 2012 the family was well established and everything appeared to be going well for them bob at this point was 52 years old and worked as a public school administrator he was loved by his community and all those who knew him bob's wife rose was just a year younger than bob being 51 years old and was an equally loved fitness instructor Rose spent her free time in the swimming pool. Bob was also very, very active. He loved athletics through and through. He was an avid runner and competitor who participated in road races, marathons, triathlons, and took part in bike races and softball games and even in the basketball leagues. Bob was well known to have shown up to his friends' races and games just to cheer them on. He was also a massive advocate for youth sports and helped in any way he could, from preparing the fields, to keeping the scores, to even coaching. Both Rose and Bob were dedicated to all of their children and raised them with the same values that had been instilled in Bob by his parents. The family attended mass regularly at their local Catholic church and all their children attended local Catholic schools in the area. The family seems to have it all and everything seemed to be going really, really well for them. That was until the 16th of April 2012, a Monday, when tragedy struck the family of six. Shortly after 2.45am in the morning, two intruders entered the Cipriano family home. They had broken into the house through a window on the lower floor, which caused the family's dog to bark at the intruders. Bob immediately jumped out of bed in equal parts shock and fear. He knew just one thing. Somebody had broken into his family's home and he had to protect his family. 
Bob ran down the stairs and yelled at the intruders, stop, take the money and go. Though the intruders had other ideas. One of the intruders, brandishing a baseball bat made of aluminium, hits Bob on the head. This knocked him straight to the ground. That same intruder then proceeded to beat Bob multiple times on the head with the baseball bat. The other intruder held Bob down as the vicious attack unfolded. Bob's wife, Rose, heard the screams and altercations from her bedroom and rushed downstairs to see what was going on. Little did Rose know she was running into the mouth of evil. The intruders struck Rose hard with the baseball bats, though fortunately, Rose was able to run away from the intruders before she succumbed to her head injury and collapsed. Shortly after Rose collapsed to the ground, her eight-year-old daughter Isabella left her bedroom and began to come down the stairs into the foyer of the house where her mother Rose was laying beaten. One of the intruders realised Isabella's presence and took her by the hand and led her back up the stairs and into her bedroom. Though while this intruder was upstairs seemingly putting Isabella back to bed, one of the Cipriano twins, Salvatore, emerged from his own bedroom and started to attack the intruder. This rough fight slowly made its way down the stairs and into the foyer of the house, where the intruder grabbed the baseball bat and attacked Salvatore Cipriano with it. Salvatore, like his mother Rose, fell to the ground after sustaining several serious head traumas. As this attack on Salvatore Cipriano was unfolding, the other Cipriano twin, Tanner, had realised the severity of what was going on and had hidden himself in the closet of his bedroom. Tanner then pulled out his cell phone and proceeded to dial 911. We listened to a snippet of this 911 call at the start of this episode. So let's take a listen to the full 911 call. I must say that this call is of a disturbing nature, and the screams of eight-year-old Isabella can be heard in the background. It is also in these 911 calls that the authorities learn one vital piece of information, the identities of the two intruders. I must also quickly note that the official recordings of these 911 calls were not, to my knowledge, released by the courts, and so we only have recordings of the 911 calls when they were played in court during trial, so it's not the best quality and some of it is quite difficult to understand or hear. I've tried to enhance it and transcribe where I can, though certain parts of the recordings have been redacted from this episode, either due to those parts containing sensitive information or due to the inability to understand what exactly was being said. Regardless, let's take a look at those 911 calls now. Cheapo Air. For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. Thank you. 
The police rushed to the Cipriano family home and arrived within five minutes of that first 911 call being placed. The police officers walked up to the front door of the property, expecting only to be responding to a domestic violence case. They prepared themselves for the horror that domestic violence cases entail, but what they would walk into would be something from their darkest nightmares. The officers would later describe the scene as one of the most horrific any officer may encounter in his or her career. The responding officers took out their flashlights and shone them through the glass of the locked front door, which I'll put on screen now. You can see the glass on either side of the door. And when they did so, they saw a terrified eight-year-old girl standing directly in the beam of their lights at the foot of the stairs. At that exact moment, a figure ran from a room to the side of the foyer and straight up the staircase, knocking over eight-year-old Isabella in the process. It would later transpire that this figure was Mitchell Young, Tucker Cipriano's close friend. We'll, we'll come back to Mitchell Young and Tucker Cipriano in just a moment. After being knocked to the floor, Isabella got back up on her feet and unlocked the front door for the officers, allowing them to enter the premises. One of the responding officers grabbed eight-year-old Isabella Cipriano and took her to the safety of his police car. Inside the house, one of the Cipriano twins, Tanner, emerged from his hiding place in his bedroom and moved towards the police officers. Though, as the police officers didn't know who Tanner was or what his potential involvement in what had happened could be, they immediately took him down and handcuffed him. As they began to speak with Tanner, trying to figure out what exactly was going on, Mitchell Young came running down the stairs. The officers put Mitchell Young in handcuffs too. They still didn't know who had been responsible for the scene that lay before them. The police officers decided to complete a full search of the property to ensure that they had all of the perpetrators in custody and to assess the victims. They approached the staircase in the house, which had a set of stairs going up to the floor with the family's bedrooms and a set of stairs that was going down towards the basement area. You can vaguely see the layout of the Cipriano family home from this graphic taken from the court recordings. They could see Rose Cipriano, the mother of the family, slouched on the staircase with Salvatore, Tanner's twin, laying at the base of the stairs with two aluminium baseball bats on top of him. The red circle on this graphic shows the location of Rose and Salvatore on the stairs. It was immediately obvious that both Rose and Salvatore had sustained multiple severe and life-threatening head traumas. The mother and son were bleeding profusely, and they were both unresponsive. Salvatore was struggling to breathe, gurgling up blood with every shallow breath. Against their basic human instincts, the officers stepped past the severely injured Rose and Salvatore so that they could secure the property and ensure that there were no more perpetrators hiding somewhere within the house. As those officers began their search of the property, another officer gently picked up Salvatore's head in an attempt to aid his breathing. A different officer went over to give aid to Rose Cipriano. This officer held Rose up and actually tried to push Rose's eye back into the socket in an attempt to save the eye. The injuries that had been sustained were gut-wrenching and ones of pure pain and evil. The injuries were so severe, in fact, that the officers were completely unable to identify Rose and Salvatore. They were even unable to determine Salvatore's gender or age. The injuries had disfigured them that badly. 
Paramedics then began to arrive on the scene and started to try to save the lives of the victims of this attack. Both Rose and Salvatore were immediately rushed to a nearby hospital to undergo emergency life-saving treatment. I cannot stress enough the severity of the multiple head traumas that Rose and Salvatore had sustained. They both had multiple depressed skull fractures, which means that parts of their skull had broken off and had caved into their heads and were pushing down on their brains. The police officer that had been cradling and assisting Salvatore before the paramedics arrived noticed a pair of legs sticking out from the kitchen. The officer ventured cautiously into the kitchen of the home and was confronted with Bob Cipriano, the father of the family, lying face down on the grounds in a pool of his own blood. I'm about to show some censored images of what the officer found in the kitchen on screen now. Viewer discretion is greatly advised. His arm had been pulled behind his back and blood splatters were found all over the cabinets and ceiling in the kitchen. The splatters were consistent with an attacker standing over Bob and striking him on the head with a bat. Bob Cipriano was also found just in his underwear and with a BB gun near his body covered in his blood. For those who may have turned away to avoid seeing those images, those pictures have now been taken off the screen. The severity of the head trauma injuries that Bob had sustained was beyond imagination, with his skull being shattered into so many pieces. Sadly, Bob Cipriano was pronounced dead at the crime scene. The degree of injury sustained from this attack indicated one key point. Whoever had been responsible had struck these people with such force and such anger and aggression, with such meaning that they 100% intended for their victims to die in a horrific manner. The authorities located two baseball bats inside the family home, both drenched in blood, and flagged them for forensics to take DNA samples from. Those DNA samples would later come back to show that the DNA from one of the baseball bats matched that of Salvatore and his mother Rose. Neither Bob Cipriano or Mitchell Young's DNA matched any samples on that particular bat. The second baseball bat DNA samples revealed Rose, Salvatore and Bob Cipriano as major sources. Mitchell Young's DNA was able to be excluded as a source on the bat's handle, but Tucker Cipriano, the eldest Cipriano child, could not be excluded. So where was Tucker Cipriano? He wasn't found anywhere in the house, and the 911 calls from his younger brother Tanner accused Tucker of being responsible for the vicious attacks. The police also located a knife in the master bedroom of the home, with DNA samples showing that Mitchell Young's DNA could not be excluded from the knife, but Tucker Cipriano's could be excluded. Where was Tucker Cipriano? Had he escaped? After securing the property, the officers went with the handcuffed Mitchell Young to the local hospital as he was complaining about back pain and had a bloodied nose. It's important to note that Mitchell Young didn't complain about any form of jaw pain at this point. Once they had arrived at the hospital, the police took notes of the clothes that Mitchell had been wearing. The bottom of his jeans, or pants for my American viewers, were drenched in blood and it even appeared to have some form of solid matter splattered on it. Mitchell also had blood on his hands, face, shirt and boots, 
which were all swabs for DNA tests. DNA profiles matching Bob Cipriano, Rose and Salvatore were found within these samples. The blood splatters on Mitchell's pants or jeans uh, and boots were determined to be consistent with an impact splatter, with the location and trajectory of the splatter indicating that he had been standing over the blood source when the blunt force impact had taken place. At the hospital, with the police officers present, Mitchell Young wavered his Miranda rights and provided a full statement to the police. In this statement, Mitchell Young claims that Tucker, the eldest Cipriano child, had gone crazy and had started swinging. Confessed that he had helped Tucker break into the house and that Tucker, upon entering the family home, and I gotta say real quick that the following statement describes animal abuse, Tucker slams the family dog into the ground to stop it from barking. That was when Tucker's father Bob allegedly showed up in the kitchen and confronted the pet. According to Mitchell Young's initial statement to the police, that was when Tucker went crazy and started the attack on his father with the baseball bat. Just seconds after the attack started, Mitchell Young claimed to have yelled, what the fuck are you doing, at Tucker, allegedly shocked at the violence of the attack. Mitchell Young then claims that Tucker struck him with the baseball bat on the jaw and threatened him saying, quote, if you don't get with the program, you're going to join him. Referring to the abuse that Bob Cipriano was receiving at the hands of Tucker. Mitchell Young claims that Tucker then handed him the bat and instructed him to shut up his mother Rose, who had by this point entered the kitchen and was screaming for them to stop. He then admitted that, in this initial statement, he hit Rose in the head with the bat two or three times to stop her screaming. Allegedly, eight-year-old Isabella had, by this point, come down the stairs and into the foyer of the house. Tucker then apparently saw Isabella and decided to take her back upstairs to shield her from what he was doing. As Tucker was upstairs, a fight between Tucker and his younger brother Salvatore broke out, which involved the use of another baseball bat and a BB gun. Tucker allegedly attacked his brother Salvatore with the bats and the fights progressed down the staircase. It was only when headlights flooded the front of the house, the headlights from the responding officers' police cars, that they tried to Tucker allegedly ran towards the back of the house, and Mitchell Young ran up the stairs, knocking eight-year-old Isabella over as he went. Now, it's very important to note several things about this initial statement. The first point to note is that Mitchell Young only gave this statement after being confronted with the eyewitness accounts of both Tanner and Isabella Cipriano. Prior to being confronted with this information, Mitchell Young categorically denied assaulting anyone. The second point to note is that Mitchell Young failed to mention the key events leading up to the attack. Events which investigators would discover to be critical in trying to answer the biggest question in this case. Why? To answer this question, we need to rewind the clock. The true story in this case began weeks before the gruesome attacks. As it unsurprisingly turned out, the Cipriano family was not the perfect family they seemed to be from the outside. You see, Tucker Cipriano had begun to experiment with different illegal substances, and this experimentation quickly turned to addiction. His family tried to do everything within their power to get Tucker help in overcoming his addictions, 
but Tucker's addictions had seen him begin to steal money and personal items from his family to sell to buy drugs. Tucker's parents had given him so many chances and tried to help him as much as they could, but as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. And with the final straw being pulled, Tucker's parents effectively kicked him out. 19-year-old Tucker Cipriano found himself to be homeless, but he wasn't alone. He had made a friend who was also addicted to drugs, 20-year-old Mitchell Young. Now, it's unclear whether Mitchell Young and Tucker had been friends for a long time or whether this was a relatively new friendship, but what we do know is that they did become, very quickly, very close friends. Pear moved between motels and sofas, and they both had a criminal history. Tucker Cipriano had been charged with drug-related offences and had actually been on probation. On the 5th of April 2012, 11 days before the attacks, Tucker was scheduled to have an appointment with his probation officers. However, he skipped the meeting. Typically, when a person on probation misses a meeting with their probation officer without an exceptional circumstance, an arrest warrant is issued as part of the probationary terms is meeting regularly with your probation officer. But an arrest warrant for Tucker Cipriano was for some reason not issued immediately. It wasn't issued up until the, 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 the attacks in this case. It was at this same time that Tucker and Mitchell Young became desperate for money to fuel their addiction and to pay for motels and food and, you know, all that kind of day-to-day -day thing, minus the drug. It's important to note that there was a third character in this group, a third person. The person was called Ian Zinderman, and he, as with Tucker and Mitchell Young, was in his late teens, early 20s, and also had an addiction to substances. Ian Zinderman would later go on to accept an immunity deal with the courts in exchange for an accurate and detailed explanation of the events leading up to the attacks and an outline of Mitchell Young's involvement. According to Ian Zinderman's testimony, around the same day that Tucker missed the meeting with his probation officer, Mitchell Young and Tucker Cipriano approached him with a plan. This plan entailed looting a house and killing a family so that Tucker, who we know had been kicked out of his family home and who was now in violation of his probation, could steal a car and enough money to flee to Mexico, all in an attempt to evade returning to jail. It is believed that Mitchell Young had planned on joining Tucker in his escape to Mexico, though it's unclear whether Ian Zinderman also wanted to join them too. I don't think he did. I couldn't distinguish whether Ian Zinderman had a criminal record either or what his living situation was like, but it is believed that he was in a far better position than both Tucker and Mitchell Young. Tucker and Mitchell Young explained to Ian Zinderman they decided to target either a random family in the local neighbourhood, bear in mind that the local neighbourhood was, they were all quite wealthy in that neighbourhood, or Tucker's own family, and they estimated that they would be able to steal around $3,000 from the murder robbery. It's hypothesised that Tucker wanted to seek some form of revenge on his family. He had never felt fully included in the Cipriano family due to his insecurities surrounding being the only adopted child. He felt like they had effectively shunned him and that they had done him an injustice for kicking him out, though as I said, they had tried their best to find him the help he needed to overcome his addictions, but he simply didn't want to overcome them. 
The decision to kick Tucker out of the family home was not one that they took lightly, and it was a decision taken with great pain and heartbreak for Tucker's parents. Mitchell Young and Tucker told Ian Zinderman that in their plan, Ian Zinderman would be the one driving the getaway car. For his role, they would pay him one third of the total value of the heist. According to Ian Zinderman, he believed that Mitchell Young and Tucker were just joking around. He told them that he would consider their offer, but Ian Zinderman swore they never intended to actually go forward with their plan. On the night of Sunday the 15th of April 2012, Ian Zinderman, Tucker Cipriano and Mitchell Young met at the house of mutual friends. It's interesting to note that these friends were siblings, a 14-year-old girl and a 16-year-old boy. Just keep in mind that age gap between these three men and then these practically kids. Um, but for the purposes of this episode, we shall refer to the house of these mutual friends as the meeting house for privacy reasons. Shortly after the three men had met at the meeting house, they left and drove to the Cipriano family home in Farmington Hills. The three men wanted to get high and to do so, they needed money. They wanted to steal enough money to purchase the synthetic marijuana drug known as Spice or K2. Once the trio had pulled up to Tucker's family home, Ian Zinderman and Tucker Cipriano got out of the vehicle, leaving Mitchell Young in the car. Ian Zinderman then helped Tucker to break into the house through the garage window. After a short time had passed, Tucker emerged from the home with a stolen bank card in hand. The trio then drove to two different gas stations to purchase spice, withdraw some cash and purchase snacks. They were able to purchase snacks, spice, and withdraw some cash from the first gas station, but at the second gas station, they found themselves unable to use the debit card due to it being flagged for debit card fraud. Regardless, the trio still had a small amount of synthetic marijuana, and so they began to smoke it. Perhaps in frustration, or perhaps because Tucker had this inner urge to do so, Tucker decided to revive their plans to kill a family and lose a house for money. Mitchell Young agreed to Tucker's revived plans, with Tucker explaining that he thought his own family, the Ciprianos, were likely the wealthiest in their local neighbourhood, making them the best target. According to Ian Zinderman, Tucker and Mitchell Young then began to decide on who they would kill. It was decided that Tucker would kill his younger twin brothers, Salvatore and Tanner, and that Mitchell Young would be the one to kill Tucker's parents, Bob and Rose Cipriano. Tucker also decided that his eight-year-old sister Isabella was to be spared, as he allegedly loved her deeply. And so the trio drove back over to the Cipriano family home, though when they arrived, they decided to just look for money again instead of going forward with their murderous plans. Breaking back into the garage, Tucker found a Visa gift card. The trio celebrated this find and drove back over to the gas station to see how much was on the car. As it turns out, the Visa gift card only held a value of $2.65, hardly a bountiful heist. Ian Zinderman then testified that the trio returned to the meeting house, which is where he told Tucker and Mitchell Young that he wanted out and that he just wanted to spend the night at the meeting house instead. The exact timeline of events between returning to the meeting house and Tucker and Mitchell Young going to the Cipriano family home with an intent to murder is unclear. We can only make a presumption based on the testimony and evidence that Ian Zinderman had in fact remained at the meeting house and that at some point between 1am and 2.45am, 
Tucker and Mitchell Young decided to leave and carry out their plans. Leading up to the attacks were not mentioned in any of Mitchell Young's initial statements to the authorities. What we do know is that following the attacks, Tucker Cipriano ran away from the crime scene, fled the scene in his truck with his cell phone and a knife uh, in the car and drove straight to the meeting house. According to Ian Zinderman's testimony, Tucker arrived back at the meeting house at some time between 3.30am and 4am, and once Tucker had entered the meeting house, he immediately began to clean himself up. He attempted to clean the blood from his shirt and his clothes, and as he did so, he noticed an online report about the attacks, and that he was already suspected to have been involved. Tucker then ordered Ian Zinderman to go to his truck and retrieve the knife from inside so they could dispose of it. Tucker also wanted Ian Zinderman to dispose of his truck too. But before Ian Zinderman could even agree to this order, the police entered the meeting house. You see, Tucker had forgotten about one well-known and popular technique that the police use to locate people of interest cell phone tracking. The police had tracked Tucker's cell phone to the meeting house, and once they had entered the property, they located Tucker and immediately placed him under arrest. DNA samples were collected from his clothes, and DNA analysis showed that blood on Tucker's clothes matched that of Rose and Salvatore, but didn't match the blood of his father, Bob Cipriano. A washcloth tested for DNA found inside the meeting house contained Salvatore's DNA, and a blood stain on the patio door at the meeting house was determined to have contained the DNA of Tucker's father Bob. A search of Tucker's truck uncovered the visa cards that they had stolen and receipts with Bob Cipriano listed as the card holder, evidence that corroborated Ian Zinderman's testimony. Tucker Robert Cipriano was charged with homicide in the first degree, felony murder. He pled nolo contendere to this charge, which effectively means that he didn't contest the charge and pled guilty. As a result of this, Tucker was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. He is now 27 years old. He has his entire life ahead of him to rot away in a correctional facility. One count of armed robbery, two counts of assault with intent to commit murder, and one count of murder in the first degree. Mitchell Young's trial was highly publicised by the media, and his defence team tried to push the blame entirely on Tucker. Mitchell Young's defence team tried to make it seem as if Tucker had forced Mitchell Young against his own will to take part in the murder and attacks. Ultimately though, the jury saw through his bullshit, and he was found guilty on all four charges. He was sentenced to 60 years for armed robbery, with a minimum term of 23 years, 60 years each on both assaults with intent to commit murder charges, with both charges carrying a minimum term of 23 years, and finally he was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for first degree premeditated murder. Mitchell Young is now 28 years old, and as with Tucker, he now has to spend his entire life behind bars rotting away, as he deserves. Bob Cipriano was the only victim of Tucker and Mitchell Young to have passed away due to the severity of his injuries. Both Rose and Salvatore were critically injured and were in a critical state for a long time following the attacks. If the following clip doesn't get copyright strikes, I want to show you a video of Rose and Salvatore talking about their recovery. Hi, I'm Rose Cipriano, and this is my son, Salvatore Cipriano, who goes by Sal. We come from Detroit area, Farmington Hills. So Salvatore was in a walker, and he had a feeding tube, 
and he was uh, having a hard time eating things, and he had a lot of, like, a paralyzation on his left side also. Sauter was doing physical therapy every day for probably two or three months, uh, um, Monday through Friday, and still was having uh, issues with trying to walk. He started having more seizures, and nothing was coming together, and we couldn't figure out what, we are both athletes, so we couldn't figure out what to do next um, to get him to be more independent and to be able to get up. He wants to play baseball again. He uh, would like to possibly uh, golf again. And so all these questions going through our, my mind and our mind talking to doctors, therapists, what can you do to get him to be able to walk again and to get back to a more independent life? We started seeing a chiropractor that we've seen for about six years before our tragedy, and he saw, tested us and said, why don't you go to Canada, to Windsor, and see Dr. Lemo? He could possibly help you with some of the things we're trying to um, heal with. So we came to see Dr. Lemo, and he started him out testing him and getting him on exercises within a week he was able to walk without a walker. So uh, Dr. Lemo, by testing Salvatore and then saying things that could come together to get him to become uh, more uh, independent as a walker, yeah, it's very overwhelming and it's not something we heard from anybody. Everything is connected, so I started learning more about that. Uh, so he's trying. He was drooling on his left side. He essentially had paralyzation on his left side. So he was drooling. He couldn't use his left arm very well and his left leg. As soon as probably within a month or two, that stopped. Because we have had, we went to 24/7 care at home. We had to leave the hot. Well, when he got out of the hospital, he went to a lot of rehab places and then came home. Because I said enough of that come home, and then we were having 24-hour, seven days a week home care. We had to watch out for seizures and what types of food was around. I mean, everything had to be very planned, very planned. When he became more independent with walking, he then we could start working on other things because he could get out of the house. This was a thing. He was very confined to the home. Today? Um, uh, what do I say? Not... Uh, as planned, he's a lot more flexible, a lot more independent. He's become more cognitive, interesting Dr. Lemo also. Salvatore is nonverbal, and fortunately, he had a phone before our accident happened, so this has become an uh, avenue of communication for him, huge. He will use the iPad to communicate. Five years after the attacks, Salvatore took part in a 5k run in honour of his father, Robert Cipriano, aka Bob. The 5k run is called the Cipriano Classic and it's now become an annual event. Alright Ben, an emotional night for the Cipriano family. It's been more than five years since Robert Cipriano was killed by his oldest son in his Farmington Hills home. His wife and son survived that attack. Tonight they both attended a 5K held in Robert's honor. Jermont Terry was there and Jermont, we know a big milestone for one of them tonight. Sandra, not only did they set a record attendance for runners and walkers, but Sal Cipriano himself hit the pavement after much motivation, determination, and many prayers. 
On your mark, get set, go! Sal Cipriano started the race, but this year, he was more than a spectator. Because he's been here a couple years, but he's been on the sideline. To see him in the run with us, it means a lot. With his mother and twin brother by his side, Sal proved that with hard work and determination, you can overcome anything. In September of this year, Isabella Cipriano authored an article discussing her experiences. You can find a link to the entire article in my sources, but I just wanted to read you some of these extracts. I believe she's 17 when she wrote these. That Night by Isabella Cipriano I am glad bad things have happened to me in the past. This sounds crazy because, let's face it, who likes pain? But I'm glad for these experiences because suffering shows me a different perspective on the world and allows me to be more empathetic towards those around me who have also experienced pain. In one night, my whole life was turned upside down. I became fatherless and almost lost both my brother and my mother because my eldest brother and his friend broke into our house while high on drugs. Armed with baseball bats, they gave my mum, my dad and my other brother traumatic brain injuries. A traumatic brain injury that killed my father. Brain injury that still gives my mother debilitating headaches. And a traumatic brain injury that took away my brother's ability to speak and live independently. All while I watched as a young girl who woke up in the middle of the night to find that nightmares do not stop when you cease to sleep. That night, a gaping wound was left in my heart. That night, a hole was left in my family that will never close even if it has grown to be more bearable. That night, I did not know if my family would survive, and I thought myself an orphan, with just one brother left, physically unscathed. As for me, I know that I will never be normal again, but I also know that I no longer want to be. I am who I am now because of that night, yet I do not define myself by just that night. And that's everything that I have for you in today's case. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and you hit that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video. Don't forget to jump on over to my merch store, joshuamiles.shop and grab yourself something from there. 10% of each purchase is being donated to the DNA Doe Project and we've raised almost $2,000 so far, which is absolutely incredible. Uh, go follow me on Twitter and Instagram. They'll be on screen too. Um, also, quick note, a lot of people have been commenting about my backdrop. Um, fun fact, I moved house, so the old backdrop is capoosh. Um, doesn't exist anymore. Um, so I've been, we've been trying to jazz this one up a bit more. I know for a while it was just blank. Um, it was just the wall. But, you know, we, we've been trying to get some nicer decorations up. So let me know what you think of this at the moment. Spill the tea. Also, I've turned this purple light down a bit because it was bright. We all, we all know that. We, we knew. We knew, sis. Anyway, with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.